Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at UVA and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that for want of a settled foreign policy, we shall act not upon reflection and choice, but under the impulse of accidents and the impact of force. I am Eric Edelman. I'm a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center, and a frequent Bulwark contributor. And I'm joined by my partner in crime and strategic analysis, uh, Elliot Cohen. Elliot, welcome. Well, thank you, uh, Eric. I'm Elliot Cohen. I'm the Robert Osgood Professor of Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And I'm also the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm a amazed I can remember all that. And uh, as uh, Eric said, we've been uh, partners in crime in government and out for uh, a couple of decades now. And our guest today is our former colleague in government, Philip Zellico, who is the White Burkett Miller Professor of History and the J. Wilson Newman Professor of Governance at the Miller Center of Public Affairs, both at the University of Virginia. Philip was our colleague in government and has also been the executive director of the 9-11 Commission. So, Philip, welcome, and we're glad to uh, have you here to talk about your book that was published earlier this year, The Road Less Traveled, The Secret Battle to End the Great War, 1916-1917. And it seems like a particularly appropriate time to talk about diplomacy and what makes it succeed or fail, given that President Biden at the UN General Assembly uh, last month when he was uh, speaking talked about replacing endless wars with what he called relentless diplomacy. And you described some relentless diplomacy in the period of 1916 to 1970 that came tantalizingly close to ending World War I, but failed, which you call the single most consequential failure in American diplomatic history. Tell us about how this happened. Why was it a propitious time for diplomacy to succeed and why did it fail? Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Elliot. And it's great to be with you. The book is about the turning point of World War I. The turning point of World War I is the point at which the war could have ended, but instead of ending, it widened. It widened to include the United States. It widened to then spill over into a Russian revolution and Russian civil war. It widened to extend into the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and a series of wars that then engulfed the Middle East and wars that continued on into the early 1920s. So that hinge moment, at which the war could and probably should have ended and would have ended, it would have ended if it had not widened. It either had to end or widen. That point was in the winter of 1916 and 1917. It could and should have ended because quite secretly, the Allied side was running out of the money to continue it. Uh, the United States at the end of 1916 actually cut off the supply of unsecured financial loans. And basically the the, the sands were running out of the hourglass for allied finance and were bound to run out unless America entered the war in the spring of 1917. Uh, and that was 40% of the allied war effort by there, larger than the war effort of all of France put together. So the war was w- would likely have come to an end in 1917 had America not entered it. The reason America entered it was because the peace talks to end the war failed. Now, that's a very different story from the story everyone was taught in school. Everyone was taught in school that the reason the war widened, the reason America entered the war, was because the Germans declared an unrestricted U-boat war. What they don't teach in school, what is not generally known, 
is the Germans only declared the U-boat war as a desperate expedient because their peace talks had failed, to which many World War I experts actually would say, what peace talks? <laughs> um, oh, the peace talks that the German government initiated to arrange for, to seek American mediation to end the war, which the Germans initiated at the highest levels in August 1916 and pursued basically for about six months. Uh, for the rest of 1916 and the first month of 1917. And the Germans uh, went to the U-boat war in a desperate effort to end the war because their peace talks to end it had failed. These peace talks involved the United States. They indirectly also involved uh, the British and their allies who were aware secretly of the German effort to request American mediation and were themselves agonizing in their own internal debates about how, whether to continue the war, debates that were entirely secret and actually remained secret, including from most historians, for generations. So this whole story of the failed effort to end World War I is a story that is hardly understood at all. Yet it's that failure that's the reason the war widened. Wilson himself was bewildered that his peace efforts had failed, did not understand why they had failed, even though he was the instrumental cause of their failure. And that's the puzzle and the story that I try to tell in the book, I regard it as the most consequential diplomatic failure in American history. Because had World War I ended in the winter of 1617, the entire course of world history would have been incalculably different. Uh, not just American history, which would have been enormously changed, but world history. Uh, there is no scenario, if the war does not continue, in which the Bolsheviks seize power in Russia. I think every historian of the Russian Revolution would concede this. Without the Russian Revolution and its cascading consequences, different world. The implosion of the Middle East had not yet begun in the winter of 1916-17. So the whole question of what would happen with the Ottoman Empire could have taken a very different path. The whole descent of Europe into nihilistic violence and the edge of total war had not yet happened. The war would have ended with a scarred, bitter, compromised peace that would have engendered many difficulties of its own, but on, on an inconceivably different scale than what actually ensued. So, Phil, could, could I ask you to talk a little bit about two things? One is, what kind of compromised peace do you think was realistic to, to hope for? I mean, what roughly what the terms would have been? And then maybe tell us a little bit more about Woodrow Wilson and Colonel House. I, I suspect many of our listeners have heard of Colonel House. Uh, they may be a little bit surprised to realize he wasn't actually a military person at all. But if you could say a little bit more about him, about his mission, and, and how Wilson went about this failed effort to uh, bring peace. So quick uh, um, sketch of the situation, end of 1916. All the warring powers are completely exhausted and have no idea how to win the war. They've all tried their plans to win the war. All those plans have failed. The, the Germans are desperate to find some new way of bringing the war to an end. The Allies secretly realize that they will have trouble continuing, and they're playing around with different panaceas and engaged in extremely secret internal debates about whether to continue. So to Elliot's question, like, what would have been the compromise? Actually, there was a fair understanding of this among what at the time were called, people referred to them as moderates, or they referred to this as what, quote, a piece of understanding, or, quote, an inconclusive piece. And the basic idea was that it would have gone more or less back to the borders of 1914, with a few exceptions. Russian Poland 
would almost certainly have gained its independence. The Germans had just granted, the Germans had occupied Russian Poland in 1915 and 16, and the Germans had just granted, uh, had just created an independent Polish state for the first time in more than 100 years. A new kingdom of Poland, some sort of independent Poland, I think, would have been an outcome. There would probably have been some uh, negotiated rights of at least Russia getting better access through the Dardanelles Straits. There would have been some arrangements that favored the Germans and Austrians in the Balkans, but Serbia would have been restored as a nominally independent state. In the West, Germans and Austrians discussed this, by the way. Uh, Very secretly, they expected that they would have to yield all their conquests. They would have to get out of Belgium. They would probably even have to withdraw from all of France. There were even discussions among the Germans and Austrians, and then secretly, very secretly, between the Germans and the French in Switzerland, even about how to handle the Alsace-Lorraine problem. So in effect, all the sides would have had to concede that their hopes of conquests and large annexations all would have to be given up on both sides, that more or less the borders of 1914 would have been restored, probably with an independent Poland. And that, again, among the people who were interested in a compromise peace on all sides, British, French, German, Austrian, American, this was generally understood. The Americans and some of the British and even some Germans were also very interested in creating some some structure for guaranteeing post-war security. The Americans and British liberals began really emphasizing this, and this was the part of the piece in which the Americans decided they would take a more direct part, some kind of League of Nations idea. The various arguments about how that League of Nations would work were all in coit and had not yet been developed enough to be joined. But by the end of 1916, all sides, British, German, American, Austrian, all had publicly come out in support of the League of Nations principle, and all had said that they were willing to support such a system of post-war security. So that that's the outline of the compromise piece. Then the challenge is, uh, how do you get there? The two warring sides completely distrusted each other. Neither would accept a peace opening from the other. They would see it, see it as a sign of arrogant weakness, a victor's peace, or else as a, as a sign of arrogant strength, or as a sign of weakness. So the only way to get to the peace talks, and everyone understood this, was for a third party to offer mediation. There was a general understanding that the key neutral that could do that were the Americans. That was President Wilson. Wilson wanted to do it. This also was well known. And there was an obvious precedent for it. It was an American president and the United States that had mediated an end to the last great power war, the Russo-Japanese War, in which Theodore Roosevelt and the United States had mediated the Russo-Japanese settlement, negotiated at an American seaside town, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in 1905. So, and everyone knew this precedent. So it was logical then to look to Wilson. Wilson welcomed this idea. He'd been agitating all through 1916 for the British to ask for the mediation. The British came within an ace of asking for it in the spring of 16, but it ended up being the Germans who asked Wilson first in August of 1916. And my story is what happened after that. Philip, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the personality of President Wilson, the relationship with House in particular. You talked about the Portsmouth model, obviously, that existed for uh, U.S. mediation uh, and diplomacy. Does Wilson reach out to his predecessor once removed to find out about this and to inquire as to you know what 
made it work or even show much interest in in studying the precedent in any detail. And talk a little bit about how so the thing that's very striking when I read the book as someone like you who uh, served in the State Department, who was a, a professional diplomat, is the degree to which the ambassadors are almost non non factors here. I mean, uh, Wilson has pretty much written off his his ambassador to the Court of Saint James in London. Spends more time listening to the number two in Berlin than to the ambassador himself. The British ambassador here probably everyone would have been better served had he been declared persona non grata, um, and a, as a result. Uh, House and Wilson rely on a back on a 31-year-old British Army intelligence, right? A, a classic back channel. So, yes. talk a little bit about these relationships and tell us a little bit about the sort of formal diplomatic channels and the the back channels. I mean, uh, House has no official government position, so in some sense, he's a back channel for Wilson as well as the. Wiseman is a, a British back channel. Talk a little bit about about that, if you would. Yeah, the, in a way, the one of the fascinations of this story, when you get into it, is the contrast between the colossal world historical stakes in play and the pitiful and bizarre processes in which the story played out. These strange and idiosyncratic personal relationships, above all in the case of the United States. So you here you have uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson, whom historians tend to characterize as a woolly-headed idealist. But actually, the book points out that in many ways, uh, Wilson was regarded as the hard-headed uh, centrist who was actually trying to pragmatically find his way in between the camps to either side of him on the right and the left. And yet Wilson did this in an extremely, uh, in a way that was personally very aloof and isolated as unusual combination of personal confidence in his intellectual ability, but an unwillingness to a sense that he didn't really know what he didn't know. And then he doesn't really trust his secretary of state. He's right not to trust him, but his secretary of state is unimportant. He treats him as a clerk and he kind of is a clerk. So Wilson relies overwhelmingly to conduct his diplomacy through the peculiar figure of Edward Mandel House. So who is House? House is an expatriate Texan. He'd grown up in a wealthy Texan family, but had abandoned Texas more or less to live on the eastern seaboard with regular grand tours in Europe. He had, as, as Elliot observed earlier, this honorific title of colonel that had been given him by a Texas governor. But in fact, House had never served in the military or indeed had never served in government. And indeed, during this period, House was not was also not serving in government. He was a private citizen living in an apartment in Midtown Manhattan who would commute frequently down to Washington to visit with his friend, the president, and be the president's good counselor, and then go out to Europe and take soundings and report back. House was mainly useful to Wilson as a friend, sounding board, and guide to patronage pers- personal appointments. House was actually not an important figure on most policy issues of the Wilson administration. And indeed, on a lot of those issues, his views were benighted or wrong. But Wilson did peculiarly rely on him for foreign policy, especially towards Europe, because of the supposition that House knew everybody from these trips he'd been making to the to the courts of Europe and such. Uh, House's knowledge was that of a learned and quite talented observer of people, but a very dilettantish observer of issues. 
whose understanding of the issues is very superficial based on what different people told him and who he happened to admire. His grasp, really, of anything outside London was especially weak. And even in London, he relied hugely on his connections among a particular circle of British liberals, above all the influence of a man named David Lloyd George, which would be very fateful in this story. So Wilson, therefore, is actually a powerful intellect whose broad view of America and the war in many ways is quite sensible, balanced, and sound. Wilson also understood that to mediate peace, he would have to yank the chain and let the British and French know that they could not rely on American finance. Wilson did this quite secretly and personally orchestrating a cutoff of unsecured loans to the Allied side in November 1916 in order to set up his big peace move, but then he didn't really follow through effectively on the peace move, because partly because House and Wilson don't really know how to do a peace move. Coming back to your point, Eric, Wilson and House made no effort to understand how Theodore Roosevelt had handled the Portsmouth business, although it would have taken them an hour to get a lot of information about that. Wilson had no taste for the conduct of personal diplomacy. They literally didn't know how to orchestrate this peace move. They had access, they had a very immature foreign service, no one they trusted in the State Department. They did have a couple of really talented diplomats overseas, a quite talented young diplomat in Berlin named Joseph Grew, who had later during World War II become a quite important figure and was then at the beginning of his diplomatic career. They actually found a, a quite talented figure at the embassy in London, a man named William Hepburn Buckler, who gave them very good advice, but who was kind of an eccentric within that uh, embassy. He later attained post-war fame as an archaeologist working in Asia Minor, <laughs> so, but but it was new law and economics. I mean, really talented fellow, but Wilson and the House didn't know how to use it. They didn't trust their ambassador in London. They didn't trust their formal ambassador in Berlin. The British ambassador in Washington was choleric and also not trusted. So they're trying to develop this peace move, and they end up working these peculiar back channels to do it. Eventually, the British, trying to figure out how to reach the Americans, uh, create uh, try to Lloyd George Christ create one back channel to Wilson. Through the American ambassador in London, Wilson slaps it down and doesn't use it. The British Foreign Secretary creates another back channel to Wilson using uh, the chief British intelligence officer in the United States, who is a 31-year-old army captain named William Weissman, and who actually <laughs> gives House and Wilson rather good advice for a key few weeks, but it fails for reasons that you have to read the book, really, to almost to believe. They're even getting better advice from the columnists at the New Republic on whom they rely for a few weeks, Walter Lippmann and Herbert Crowley, but they don't implement that advice effectively and screw it up. Um, and meanwhile, the British and the Germans are both in this desperate situation, both dealing with extremely tense domestic politics in which they're deeply divided about whether to try to continue the war or not and fighting the war hawks in their own countries. And the whole thing flounders and fails under circumstances under which Wilson concludes it's all the Germans' fault and America and the world go off on a different path. It's especially when you get into the German and British sides of the story and and you understand how close this came and how hard so many brave and insightful people were working to make this happen, the story acquires, I, to me, astonishing power. It's I think it's one of the most fascinating historical episodes I've ever studied. 
So, so Phil, let me ask you a um, counterfactual. If, if Wilson had had the good sense to hire the firm of Zellico, Edelman, and Cohen to staff the White House, understanding that he had not really done uh, a whole lot of diplomacy as governor of New Jersey or president of Princeton, what would have been different? I mean, I think, you know, part of, and I think this will tie in with our discussion a bit further on. I mean, in a way, part of your point is this is just lousy staff work. This is a poor thinking yes. through of policy problems and implementation, which has been one of your central concerns. I think it's been a concern for both Eric and myself and other venues as well. And I wonder if you could just tease that out. I mean, what would success, sure. you know, you've said what the end state or what the agreement would have looked like. What would a well-executed process have looked like? And what would Yeah, and actually, like? I have a chapter in the book where I pause at the moment where things are in the perfect state to move, let's say, beginning of November 1916. And then I have a chapter where I say, and by the way, now here's how, here's how it would be done. And so I actually answer the question. And the way this would have been done is Wilson is waiting now for it to be reelected to make the peace move. He's not, the German offer has been pending for months. And indeed, it's been, it's been reiterated and reiterated. And the Kaiser himself has personally pleaded with Wilson in October, please get going on this right away because we're under tremendous pressure to otherwise escalate the war. So what you, you would do then, the staff work before his reelection so that he can make the planned move as soon as he is reelected, which is exactly what he wants to do. The, literally, the very first day he's in the office after being reelected, he tells his secretary, Joe Tumulty, clear everything else. I'm going to work on nothing but this. He calls House to come down from New York, and he, he wants to do this instantly. And he's seized with a sense of urgency. He, he says to House on November 14th, uh, if I don't do this right away, I fear we will be dragged into the war. So you would have had the staff work already ready, as to, and the staff work would have involved first the pre-negotiation of the conference. You have said, we're going to plan to call for a peace conference. We're already exerting our financial leverage to make it clear the war as it is now is just not going to continue. Uh, the Germans have already asked you to mediate, so you're going to invite people to come. But then the theory is, I need to do this in a way that both sides can save face. Since the Brit the Germans are in this relatively good position on the ground at the moment, what you could set up for the Allies is a precondition in which, come to the peace conference because the Germans have assured me personally that in this peace conference, they will restore Belgium. Now, Belgium is the issue for the British public. It is the issue for the American public. If you indicate that the peace that the Germans have accepted the restoration of Belgium as a precondition of good faith to come to the peace conference, you immediately neutralize a key part of Allied opinion. It immediately indicates the Germans are prepared to accept the compromised peace, and it allows Asquith then to go to the country saying, you see, we have persuaded the Germans to adopt a compromise peace. We went to war on the issue of Belgium. You can just see the way you'd run the argument. And the, the alternative of endless fighting to with difficulty of even achieving this result would have been palpable. So that move could have been made literally the week of November 14th, which is the week Wilson wanted to make the move. The move could have been prepared weeks in advance because everyone knew that Wilson was going to have to work this the day right after being reelected, including starting with Wilson himself. If he, Wilson had even indicated that I'm preparing a possible move for a peace conference and told that to the British, 
and I'm looking at this precondition, a precondition the Germans had already offered Wilson, knowing he would need it. Wilson had not even asked for this, and the Germans volunteered it because it was just so obvious to them that Wilson would need something like this to get going. And that could come from the Chancellor himself as well as the German ambassador. So Wilson makes this move. At this point, Asquith, we now know from the British records, was the British government was on a knife's edge about whether to continue the war that week of November 14th. Indeed, the debate over whether to continue the war turned into a public political crisis that led to the downfall of the Asquith government a few weeks later and the replacement of Asquith with Lloyd George, though the full reasons for that crisis were hidden from the British public at the time. The whole background of the debate over continuing the war remained actually secret for generations. The contents of a cabinet meeting on November 22nd were never made public in British memoirs or archives, literally for generations. So there were no formal records kept in the British cabinet of that meeting. Of course, instantly, as soon as Wilson puts that in the air, that possible peace conference, preconditioned restoration of Belgium, I think instantly everything changes. Because, of course, that would have riveted and galvanized attention from everyone to work on nothing but this until the issue was resolved. The British and French publics were incredibly war-weary. The, the French president himself had privately confided to the British king that the war needed to be ended as soon as possible, but he could not say so publicly. But that the French people were privately exhausted and were nearing, the, nearing an inability to continue. As both of you know, the French army would actually mutiny in the spring of 1917 in the next wave of offensives on the Western Front. So that's my answer to your question, Elliot, is if, if people had basically put together the move that could easily have been put together with the knowledge they had at the time, looking back to how they had handled the Russo-Japanese business, the shape of a possible move was there. To his credit, Wilson recognized the, fin the financial pressure he would need to show, and he pulled that chain and managed that brilliantly. He just then did not know how to execute the peace move. House delayed and deflected him through a series of maneuvers that first slowed him down for several weeks. Well, literally, he's drafting the peace move himself because he can't get anyone to help him do it. Wilson is writing it out. And he actually had the call for the peace conference in an initial draft. House persuades him to take it out. Uh, Wilson tells House to write I mean, letter to the British, which doesn't get sent to the British quickly enough because it gets sent by ship instead of by cable. I mean, just, you can just go on and on. The and, and from there, the story gets stranger. <laughs> Literally right up to January 31st, 1917 and February 1st, when even as the Germans are declaring the U-boat war, the German chancellor confides his likely peace terms to Wilson in a last desperate effort to try to revive the peace talks. And Wilson and House are so furious about the U-boat move that they basically blow off and ignore what Chancellor has done. Philip, you know, you've made a very powerful case both today and in the book about the absence of uh, proper staffing, the uh, lack of professional diplomats. You don't really get a professional diplomatic corps until the Rogers Act sometime in the middle of the 20s anyway. And the sheer difficulty you've just been talking about of communicating intent across distance and across cultural barriers. But, you know, the real gravamen of, of what you've said in the book is the, the lack of adequate staff work. And that's yes. a very big contrast with what we see in terms of the American performance 
during World War II and then subsequently during the Cold War. And this is, as Elliot said, is a subject that uh, has engaged uh, your interest for quite quite some time. But most recently, a couple of years ago, in an article in the Texas National Security Review about regaining policy com- competence and what it what it would take. Tell us a little bit about both the rise of policy competence. How did we become from this sort of bumbling ineptitude you describe in, in World War I, the sort of colossus that bestrides the earth uh, at, you know, at the end of World War II and in, in creating the post-war order? And how have we lost that mojo and how do we get it back? You know, it's it's a wonderful topic, and Elliot and I have talked about this separately. Elliot is a former dean of a school that trains people in this, and I think share both of you share a lot of my frustrations about this. It's interesting to recall the reputation of mid-20th century America. We were the supremely practical can-do country. We were the country who could get beyond ideology and solve any number of practical problems and and we were widely admired around the world for our ability to get things done. Build airstrips on islands, build atomic bombs, develop a Marshall Plan, organize giant armies and navies. I mean, just just on and on and on. This was our reputation. We had a reputation of being competent. And you can contrast that with, say, the reputation America has at the moment in the world. So what changed? The argument I make in my essay is that these skills did not come out of academia, and they did not go back to academia. These skills, uh, these this, this canon of professional training, I argue, basically arose out of cultures and habits in the American private sector, which was then a private sector dominated by a culture of engineering skills that was also reinforced by a particular set of cultures in the American War Department, which was highly influenced by British political work that they encountered during the war and which they greatly admired. They admired the British staff work, envied it, and sought to emulate it. It's not actually very well understood that the whole origin of the National Security Council system in the late 1940s was an American effort to go further to emulate the British war cabinet. And by the way, President Truman opposed the original creation of a National Security Council precisely because he understood that, that the British war cabinet made the prime minister just first among equals in a system of cabinet government that rallied all the different institutions in a system that relied on very high quality staff work. The people who understood the reasons for the creation of National Security Council kind of passed off the scene when Eisenhower left the presidency. Eisenhower remembered this whole story and understood it, as had many others who had had these wartime experiences. I want to stress then the engineering culture that was the dominant culture in the private sector and the American War Department culture especially, but also Navy and Air Corps, strongly influenced by British practices. So, Philip, just to amplify a little bit, You've been talking about the skills. I mean, how would you classify them? How would you describe them? What what are they? They are basically they are uh, first of all they are skills in uh, written assessments of situations that are highly detailed and concise. They are um, extremely detailed operational choreographies of what to do, comparable to what you would see in engineering and scientific work that are very much oriented to how to do things. And the judgments of what to do are intimately connected with extremely detailed written staff work of how to do them, and also constant staffing habits 
in which every aspect of the process is being recorded. If you have a meeting, you record what's been discussed at the meeting. If decisions are made, you record what decisions have been made. These staffing cultures were so deeply imbued in this generation that literally, if John Foster Dulles had a meeting with Dwight Eisenhower, just the two of them, both men would then go back and write up a written record of what had just happened in the meeting because they were both so imbued that this was just appropriate professional culture. I can remember this from the Bush administration. Brent Scowcroft, who was trained to these habits, uh, Bush and Scowcroft would be in high-level meetings where no one but those two would be in the meetings. Scowcroft, and you can imagine what a busy man Brent Scowcroft was. Scowcroft would write up the memcons for the meetings himself uh, because the staffing culture that you had to produce such records was so profound. It's the same staffing culture that does this incredible work to do the official histories of World War II in dozens of volumes, especially the Army volumes, but including others. I mean, like, kind of what's the culture that thinks you have to produce so much work of such high quality all through the 1950s? It's the same culture. It's just another aspect of it. It's the same culture that thought that producing something like uh, four volumes of Pentagon papers to study their Vietnam work was just something a healthy institution would do. But the culture comes down to a culture of written staff work about policy design in which literally decisions can be made without a lot of personal meetings at all you can make decisions in some respects just off the paperwork. And then personal meetings were used to do things kind of on the margins of that. In a way, the proliferation of high-level meetings, the more meetings you have at higher levels, usually is a symptom of the collapse of written staff work. Is therefore, I need to have more and more meetings at higher and higher levels to compensate for the problem that I don't actually have quality professional written staff work that works through these things in competent ways without such meetings. And it means also that I'm increasingly emasculating the line departments and agencies that I should have trained to do this work. But the point that I was making in my article is that the training and culture to do all of this didn't come out of academia. It came out of a lot of other things in American life in the mid-20th century. And so it never went back to academia. And therefore, the whole canon of how to train people for this work was never really created in academia. And my argument is that canon has now faded and has disappeared from American political life. And a lot of the things that we ascribe, that we blame in lots of different ways, including, by the way, the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, about which there is a very lively debate. But a lot of this actually can be traced to the basic breakdown of high-quality professional staff work in situations where almost no one working in the government has received formal training in how to do this. No one has been trained in how to do policy design, how to do this sort of staff work. So you basically have people kind of making it up as, uh, with no formal training except kind of what they've heard hanging around the halls. I have to say, Philip, that I'm, I'm watching Eric and he's been vehemently nodding, particularly through <laughs> that last part. Actually, Eric, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I must say I had a twinge thinking about some of the long, pointless, repeated meetings in the sit room that I experienced. But you experienced many, yeah. many, many more of those. Maybe, I don't know, you, you should amplify that a bit. Well, I, look, Philip's exactly right. And the argument he makes in his article just resonated powerfully with me 
I think all three of us could probably get rich if we got a nickel for every meeting we were in the sit room where people started out by saying, okay, what should our talking points be? As opposed to what is it that we're trying to accomplish? What, you know, how should we think about the problem? And, and uh, what are the realistic uh, alternative courses of action? How do we get them? And what are the different policy elements we need to array to make those courses of action real, precisely the kind of thing that Philip describes that was absent for President uh, Wilson and, and Colonel House. Philip, I really would like to, we're, we're beginning to run out of time. And before we let you go, I, you said, you know, in your answer to Elliot, you talked about the Pentagon Papers, and this was a very important part of the culture of staff work that you described, which is not only the importance of assessment, but ongoing reassessment and then attempting to learn from failure. Right. Uh, Including like the so, 9-11 commission is a, exactly. a, an effort to try to, you know, and, and actually when it turns out, when you do this, well, the 9-11 commission turned out, well, this actually is, turns out to be salutary. <laughs> yeah, no, precisely. And so, you know, you talk in the article, not just about the Pentagon papers, but the uh, postmortem on the Bay of Pigs and, uh, the effort that Richard Neustadt and others led in the 1970s in the Carter administration to examine the swine flu vaccination issue, which is a little bit timely given uh, what we've just been through. There are a couple of immediate contemporary examples of this that I wonder if we can get you to, to talk about and comment on today. One is the failure to get a commission to investigate the insurrection on January 6th uh, over the counting of the electoral votes and the now ongoing congressional investigation. What's your judgment about why uh, we were unable to get a commission and how do you think the committee is doing in terms of its efforts you yourself have been involved in efforts to lay the groundwork for a commission, uh, probably private or, or perhaps a public-private partnership that would look into the government's management of the COVID-19 pandemic. And now you mentioned uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. There have been calls in conjunction with the uh, National Defense Authorization Act for a commission of some sort to look into what happened uh, both at the end of Afghanistan and perhaps going back all the way to the original decisions. Tell us a little bit about how you think, given your experience as executive director of the 9-11 Commission, about all three of those different efforts and, of course, your own role in the COVID effort. Well, the, the running theme in all of this is, um, is I, I really want to try to restore competent governance in the United States. <laughs> That's a little bit of, uh, I think it's a mission that all three of us share. This is not an ideological mission. Uh, I think whether you want a limited government or a larger government, either way, you would prefer that whatever governance there is be competent, that the uh, reputation of the United States that it once enjoyed for competence can be refurbished. Well, now that's not going to happen overnight, and it won't happen from just saying abstractly that it ought to happen. It happens from, let's, okay, let's roll up our sleeves then and get down to work on cases. You have some outstanding cases. Let's use these cases basically as pivots, as opportunities to do better. So whether it's the challenge to American governance posed by the 2020 election and its aftermath, the COVID crisis, the Afghan war, let's use these humiliations and the political energy about them in a constructive way to make America stronger and more competent again. And commissions can play a role as these bridges. 
to help do this. There, it's not the only way, and it's not a panacea, but it can help in all three cases. So in all these cases, the main challenge fundamentally is this. If you don't do really serious professional work to take a constructive approach to these humiliations and crises, the easy alternative to this culturally and in politics is instead, let's just do this as a politics of blame. You either do a constructive politics of learning and improvement, or you simply do it as a politics of blame and fault finding. So in the first case, you've got a politics of blame having to do with January 6th. The Republicans, for reasons that we all understand and, and deplore, can't tolerate in the caucuses in the Senate and the House a full, straight-up examination of what happened there. Therefore, the only way to do this was a democratically dominated committee. That is, a bipartisan, a true bipartisan commission could not be effectively created. Therefore, they've had to do a democratic-dominated select committee though a couple of Republicans like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are helping. But I think that investigation is off to a strong start with an excellent chief counsel named Tim Hafey. And I'm hopeful that they will, uh, it would have been better had it been done another way, but this is the only way available. In the COVID commission case, You've got a politics of blame in which they can, they cannot Congress cannot right now agree on creating a COVID commission because the Democrats don't want a commission that they think will be all about blaming Trump. Um, the Republicans would like a commission, but if only they could be sure it would blame China or China's fellow travelers in the United States, as the Republicans would frame it, and they could run their partisan blame game. So since both sides are fearful that a commission will just be used to run partisan blame games. The bill to create such a commission has faltered, and the efforts to create such a commission are now coming out of the foundation world and would probably have to be non-governmental and independent, which might be for the best if it can get the cooperation it needs to be able to do its work. On Afghanistan, uh, you see the same pattern again. There's a chance here that there might be just enough bipartisan agreement to pull it off since there is both a, there is a bipartisan the bipartisan blame game doesn't run easily to put politicians of one party or the other. It's just so obvious that administrations of both parties were part of this story. Therefore, you might get a commission if the story is broadened enough. So instead of just being about the events of 2021, it's about the it's about the larger story. And um, it's possible that such a commission could be formed and produce a healthy reexamination. Uh, to this day, we do not have an absolutely first-class account of the Iraq war catastrophe, uh, which I think was redeemed in part towards the end. But the early part of that is an unmitigated catastrophe in many ways. And we still don't have an A-plus quality uh, understanding of what happened with that, although there are a lot of efforts that are, have been trying to get at pieces of it. This is a, but a society that will not engage in this process of honest self-examination and learning is fundamentally a society that is not sufficiently healthy and robust. We've done better in the past on other things, and I think we can do better on this thing, on these things. And that's in a way is my, instead of hand-wringing and deploring the absence of competence and the decline of America, I see these occasions as opportunities to do better and go forward. You know, I, I mean, I agree with you, and obviously I'm in the business of education, as as are you. I, I do have to say, I think it's a steep hill to climb for us for 
a couple of reasons. One is senior figures in government in particular now have A, an increasing aversion to putting things in writing. B, they have available to them easy alternatives that seem to them to substitute for putting things in writing. And that's very easy, secure video teleconferencing and things of that nature. And thirdly, and this is Unfortunately, I think a testament to our educational system, many of them don't have the literary skills. You know, when you when you look at the memos, uh, as, as you and I have discussed, from World War II that are being written by majors and lieutenant colonels, they are crisp, they are clear, they are not filled with jargon, they are to the point. You can provide some of that in graduate school, but there's there are limits. So I, I'm in it with you, but I have to say, I, I do worry about the steepness of the hill. But it was in the, in back in once upon a time, before people had germ theories in biology and new molecular biology, it seemed so much easier to practice medicine without bothering with any of that. True. And it was a very steep hill to climb to actually go to all the trouble to buy all that equipment, laboratories and microscopes, and study all those molecules. I mean, my goodness, wouldn't it have just been easier to look at people and say what to do and give them some yeah. <laughs> or, or, or bleed them? But I think actually our policy making machinery is kind of at about sort of that, you know, 17th century level of diagnosing evil humors. And I think you're right. It's a steep hill to climb, but it's, it's kind of it's kind of time for, for the world of public policy making to catch up with so many other areas of human advancement and become well, you're, not, you're not allowed to give up. I, I, I have one other question, though, that I wanted to ask. So you've actually had uh, two, I think, quite significant books come out, this one and uh, another one, Suez Deconstructed. Maybe that'll be another subject for a, a podcast and one that I think is, uh, is actually particularly useful in coursework of this kind. But he, here's my question for you, Phil. G- given that uh, a lot of this American um, kind of policy craft, particularly when it comes to statesmanship, uh, diplomacy derived from the British. How is it that the British system, which did marvelous staff work in many ways during the Second World War, blew it so thoroughly and comprehensively in 1956? Yes. No, and actually the the British chapters in the Suez book answer this question. Uh, what happened in a way was that their whole staff system got bypassed and deranged in part by uh, a combination of Eden's, Anthony Eden's political, insoluble political dilemmas, what seemed insoluble to him. And uh, the Americans actually offered a diplomatic way out. He could have taken a diplomatic way out that would have been a face-saving diplomatic settlement that everyone thought that, and everyone thought the crisis was going to be settled in October 1956 along the lines of a face-saving diplomatic approach that the Americans in part had helped develop. So why didn't he take that? He didn't take that because the French and Israelis had cooked up a tempting alternative. I can't stress enough because people don't look hard enough at how important the French were in that story. Uh, this is a story in which the, uh, the British get a lot of attention, the Israelis some attention, the Americans. The French are a linchpin in this story. There's no way the Israelis, this sto- that, that plan comes together without the French. The British and Israelis can barely tolerate each other's company. They ha- kind of hate each other. The French are the only ones who can midwife the British and the Israelis working together on anything. And the French, the leaders of the French Fourth Republic in that period were a little bit in love with Israel and with the Israeli leaders. There was a deep, deep relationship there. And the French had their own concerns that this crisis seemed to address in a place called Algeria. So, 
the French play this role and bring it together. And so here's Eden. He and most of his government think he's going to have to settle for this face-saving way out that's being developed in the United Nations. And the French and Israelis offer him the panacea solution of all solutions. And he and he lunged for it and bypassed his own system to do it. Well, we've come to the end of our time, although we could obviously do a whole season of podcasts, Philip, with you just on, on World War One. So I want to thank you for joining us today on Shield of the Republic. The book is The Road Less Traveled. Anybody who's interested in diplomacy, diplomatic history, World War One should absolutely read it. And we will be back with Elliot Cohen, my partner, and hopefully with Philip at some time in the future to do a deep dive on Suez. <laughs> Thank you for joining All us right, today. Take care. Elliot? Gosh, thank you so much, Elliot and Eric, for, uh, for this wonderful chance to talk both history, but also the relationship of history to current events. Well, it's uh, something we, all three of us, I think, um, feel very strongly. I'll just add my thanks to uh, Eric's. This was a, an enjoyable conversation and, and an enlightening one. Thank you, Philip. Thank you.